Hey folks, it's Jesse, the founder of MaxFun. Since we postponed our annual Max Fund Drive in mid-March, we have gotten a lot of questions about if and when we'd be rescheduling it. And honestly, we've been asking ourselves the same thing. Well, now we have an answer for you. The 2020 Max Fund Drive will start on July 13th. That's coming up soon. We decided to have the drive now because it's always brought a lot of joy and excitement to our community and certainly to us. And to be totally honest, it's also the main source of income for some of our hosts. Like pretty much everything right now, this year's drive is going to be a little different. Uh, we'll still be bringing you very special episodes, fun community activities, premium thank you gifts. But we also know it's a weird time and for some folks, a really difficult one. Some people are in a position to become new or upgrading members. Others can't right now. And that is okay. We'll have ways for you to support MaxFun at every level, including some ways that won't cost you anything. We're also going to run the drive for four weeks instead of two. We didn't think it was a good time to be rushing anybody, and uh, having a longer drive lets us be a little more low-key in our drive pitch. It also gives us more time to do fun stuff, like the weekly live streams we'll be putting on for charity throughout the drive. Most importantly, we want the 2020 Max Fund Drive to highlight all the ways we support each other and our communities. We also want to show how grateful we are to you for making all the work that we do possible. Stay safe. We'll see you July 13th for the Max Fun Drive. Hey, baby, hey, we're back. Hey, baby. <laughs> Badder than ever. Hey, hey movie baby. babies. Hey, uh, baby <laughs> who, bads. Hey, who, lo who loves you, baby? <laughs> oh, cool. It's me. Telly Savalas for Diners Club. No, no, Telly Savalas, like you first said. <laughs> Telly Savirus. Telly oh, Savirus, wow. which is what, the punk name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what the, that's, that's Telly they... roller derby name. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! It's weird that he just used his own name as a variant. It's like if CCH Pounder had her roller derby name. She be doesn't CCH need to change Pound it. Her. Yeah. No, exactly. doesn't. Not even necessary. Just Pounder already works. Yep. Okay. Uh, keep all that in. And oh, yeah. Yeah. this is one of those minis that we do, guys, between uh, full episodes where we talk and, about... And who are we? And oh, what sorry. is this? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yep. Return to first principles. You, you got me. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the Flophouse. Uh, normally we talk about a bad movie. Um, but on off weeks, we talk about whatever our heart desires. Um, mm -hmm. I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. I'm Elliot Kalen. So, Dan, you're saying this is one of those minis, and today we're going to be talking all about the most famous mini of all. That's right, Mini Me. The history of Mini Me. And, and what's also, great is this Mini Me episode that's a mini is brought to you by Mini's Bar, a bar that I am one of the owners of, and we just added some new menu items, including locally sourced frankfurters mm -hmm. that's right oh, that's that sounds great if you are in sunset park brooklyn and need a frankfurter you can go to minnie's bar the sponsor of this mini episode about mini me and, and mini I'm, coopers i'm glad we could yeah line up minis to be a sponsor because previously we'd been approached by maxi pads and we all thought that would be very confusing to have that uh -huh. be the sponsor for mm -hmm. a mini or well, max, i wanted to max call l tapes yeah. I wanted to call it the Flophouse Maxell Maxi Mini, but I was shouted down, shouted down at the Flophouse Town Council meeting. So anyway, 
Minnie Me, where she was also known Minnie Pearl, was one of the great comedians of the Grand Ole Opry, appearing uh-huh. there and on the TV show Hee Haw over decades. <laughs> Famous for her hat with a with a price tag <laughs> hanging from it, which is funny, I don't know why, for some reason. She also ran a series of chicken restaurants. Chicken, you say? Well, yes, come with me on a magic journey through the lives of our favorite poultry. So, the story of chicken begins wait. millions of years ago <laughs> with dinosaurs. Yes, wait, Dan? Uh-huh. Uh, so Elliot's clearly reading from something, which means one of two things. Either knowing what our sub- our topic would be, he instead decided to start off with this bit that he had planned and he had nope. notes for, or nope. for some reason he had already been looking at Minnie Pearl's Wikipedia page nope. and decided to read off of it. Both wrong. I looked it up after I introduced the concept, okay. and that's just how good I am at reading things and then saying them as if I'm remembering them. Elliot, now, when it comes you, to chickens, I'm reading, from, some, I'm reading from something called my memory. Yeah. You'd mentioned yes. dinosaurs. Can we get back to that? Dinosaurs. The year was 1990 <sighs> or so, and a little show called Dinosaurs was about to premiere on, let's say, ABC. The story of Earl Sinclair, Baby Sinclair, and some other dinosaurs whose names I don't remember at the moment. <laughs> nice. It taught the world that, yes, you could do a Simpsons ripoff yes. with animatronic dinosaurs, but it would not last as long as The Simpsons. <laughs> the Simpsons was... still growing strong in its 57th season, while Dinosaurs <laughs> has would... long since gone extinct. Guys, it would be... With Flophouse <laughs> News... I'm Elliot Kalin. Dan, back it would to you. Be, it would be hard to overstate how hot the room is that I'm in right now. Uh-huh. So it's not that you can't uh, do this shit, but you just weigh how valuable it is. Just like put put it on, like think of your good friend Dan McCoy. Who, and who's, how, who's wilting like a sandwich in the yeah, sun. Yeah, and just mm-hmm. think about whether it's oh, worth it That's such it a not. sad play, like a sandwich in, a su- in the sun. <laughs> now, Dan, here's the thing that I would find find interesting, is that, um, I've now contributed no less than I think thirteen ideas for what this episode could be about, and you've done nothing but well, complain. But here's what we're because, actually going to talk about. Because well, we, because we decided ahead of time, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, music and movies. I mean, I, I think scores more specifically, probably. Although I don't care. not this not the strip club slash steakhouse scores. No, uh-huh. but, but like, no, but. But uh, movies, well, we, this could be well. This this episode will be coming out a week, roughly after, or a little bit less than a week after the passing of Ennio Morricone, one yeah. of the great, great, the great, King, great yeah. film scorists, and uh, certainly someone whose work meant a lot to me uh, throughout my life growing up. And uh, so we were like, "What about movie scores? Let's talk about something we don't talk about a lot on the fo- podcast." And when it comes to movies, is the music that's in the movies. So. Take it away. The year was 1929, <laughs> and people wanted sound in their movies. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, there was only one way to do it. Hire someone to just stand next to the screen and talk all the dialogue and all the music. Oh, Flash wow. forward to 1972, you know, when The Godfather was sweeping the Oscars full of music. Yes, Dan? Speaking of people talking next to the screen, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but... Um, one of the writers uh, uh, at The Daily Show currently is a man named Joe Opio, who is from Uganda. And uh, he was telling me about how in Uganda they will often have, uh, when they have, you know, uh, uh, movies from other lands, uh, other places, they will have someone mm-hmm. standing next to the screen screen 
translating it for them rather than having subtitles but they will like often just like make something up if they think the movie is too boring <laughs> or they'll well, just throw in like shout outs to their family and friends and it sounded like the most awesome. awesome way to watch a movie that's i mean it's a great job to have i don't know if it's such a great way to see the movie but <laughs> that I, they used to i know it's no no, no. Movies, i think i think christopher nolan said that's the ideal way to watch all of his movies either <laughs> he that said you're or not while you're playing a video game you're not truly watching a film unless it's shot on film and there's a man next to the screen telling you about his family and maybe just making shit up because he doesn't know the actual dialogue. But they, they, I know that uh, like in Japan for silent movies decades ago, they used to have someone standing next to the screen who would explain the movie as it was going on. Because like Akira Kurosawa's brother used to do that, apparently. Yeah. The other big thing that Joe told me is is just how popular Baby's Day Out is in other countries because it's huge. It's because, an enormous movie. Yeah, because you don't need to understand uh, the English language to understand what's going on in Baby's Day Out. It's well, there is no visual. country. There's no human culture in which babies are expected to go out on their own without <laughs> adults. So there, every single human culture finds the idea hilarious of a baby having a day out, whereas Ferris Bueller's Day Off, in many countries, Ferris Bueller's are not expected to work because of no. the very luxurious, some would say, welfare systems that they have for Ferris Bueller's. So like uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in, in, in America, it's like a, a day off for a Ferris Bueller? That's crazy. They have to work. But in Switzerland or you know Luxembourg, they're like, yeah, of course our Ferris Bueller's don't have to work. Every day is a day off. This movie is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, so we've learned a lot so about movie scores, scores today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, so what are, you, some of your guys, what are you, some of you guys' favorite movie composers or scores? Yeah, so when you say movie scores, we're not talking about, like, a movie like Space Jam, for instance, where there's an athletic event being played and there's a score up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Very we're good question. We're talking about the music that is being played throughout the movie. In the, the background of a movie like Space Jam, uh -huh. which has jam in the title, so it's either got some pop and tunes or... They're going to put some jelly in there. And mm -hmm. I, I assume that uh, much like my record collection, we're going to be uh, nerdy and separate out soundtracks and scores. Uh -huh. We're not just going to spend the whole time talking about the Judgment Night soundtrack, which pioneered combining two great tastes, rap and hip-hop artists and metal artists at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, Dan, you would, how would you define a soundtrack versus a score? This is something I've been trying to explain to Sammy vis-a-vis -vis the film Newsies, but you explain it. <laughs> uh, a soundtrack is... Uh, Actually, let me go wake him up. Hold on. Let me go wake <laughs> him up and bring him in here so he can hear this. <laughs> uh, a soundtrack is uh, typically without lyrics. It is orchestral, or I mean, if they have uh, human voices, it's sort of a choral situation that underscores the action of the film it's played under the action of the movie i mean i guess soundtracks are as well but they aren't like they're typically written for the film in a way that like soundtracks are usually a, a collection of pop songs although you know like th that's not even necessarily always the case since quentin tarantino repurposes for instance old scores of other people's movies to be his score mm -hmm. which is like a whole nother thing so, uh, the so, this, for, so for this, let's talk about music originally written to yeah. underscore scenes in yeah. movies. Like, and then we'll, we'll count them for the movies that they were originally written for. So, for example, yes. Take Control by Bobby Brown. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The perfect example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, There's a number, your... in the, a number of those in the Ghostbusters canon. <laughs> to answer your question, Elliot, for me, uh, number one with a bullet is uh, Bernard Herrmann. Okay, that's who, I, that's who I would probably say, too. I think his Vertigo score is possibly my favorite score written for a movie. 
Yes. I think that I'm, movie doesn't really work as well without that music. And I think that might be his best overall score in the sense of like the like all of the cues are pretty great. I mean Psycho also is is very very good. I my weirdly my favorite. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I would say the music to Psycho is no, very no, I was, very I was good. Say weirdly my Stuart, favorite. Check out Dan over here. Wow. <laughs> Dan, yeah, weirdly he's nagging my, the score. <laughs> my favorite I was just going to say my favorite single cue from Bernard Herman is uh the main title from North by Northwest even Yeah, that's though a great song too. I don't necessarily yeah, like I would hold other full scores above that movie. But that that song was so good that it was included in the trailer as music in the trailer for Ants written by previous mini guest and maxi guest Chris Weitz. Okay. Because I remember, I remember when the movie came out being like, this is a weird choice for the Ants trailers, the North by Northwest music, but I guess it's an adventure. But also yeah. like, uh, I used to, I love the moment at the end of Citizen Kane where, spoiler alert, the mm-hmm. sled's going up in flames and uh, the music starts out low and it's getting bigger and bigger and then it cuts to the chimney with the black smoke pouring out of it and it's like bomb 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 and it's very powerful to me that's good music mm-hmm. in a great scene iconic some would say yeah what do you got to say Stu? yeah i mean uh i to be honest like uh I it's been so long since I've watched a Hitchcock movie. I can't really comment on. Oh on no, that. I just meant you know who you like as a. I mean, uh, he also wrote the music for Citizen Kane, Taxi Driver, It's Alive, lots of movies. Obviously, obviously, gun to my head, I'm going to say Richard Band, the composer of Reanimator, Castle <laughs> Freak, and and uh, brother of Charles Band, right? Yeah, and brother of Charles Band, the producer of those movies. Uh, it adds you know like a like a whimsical carnival nature to otherwise horrifying movies mm. uh i think he also probably did the music for like the puppet master movies um i don't know like, i feel like I, it's unfair because he has band in his name of course he's gonna be good at music um I, we, we we uh we mentioned morricone and morricone uh did the the score for the thing so i think it would be remiss not to mention sean carpenter who uh i feel like his scores are very much, uh, I don't know, like the template of what I want in movies and my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love the Carpenter sound, and it, it's funny, like, you know, like the... John Carpenter's movies were so influential for kind of a group of filmmakers that would have grown up near to the same time as us. So we are now, like, going through that thing like when i was a kid everything nostalgic was geared towards what boomers wanted Mm -hmm. and so like everything would have like these oldies motown songs and their thing or whatever like it like in cocktail where the cool bartender keeps getting up on the fucking bar and dancing to like moany moany and shit yeah Yeah. well or like uh this is i had to uh i recently found myself on fourth of july night explaining to sammy what the california raisins were uh, because we were watching a capital fourth and the temptations were performing and he loved it and there was a song was like oh yeah when i was a kid this was a california raisins song and i had to explain to him okay so it started as an ad for the for just raisins, just for the idea of raisins, and they were 
claymation raisins that, of course, sang uh-huh. I Heard It Through the Grapevine. But yep. then they had their own TV show where they just sang different Motown hits. And Danielle was like, I never really understood what the California Raisins were. And the more I tried to explain it, the less it made sense to me. It was like some sort of uh-huh. like Kabbalistic mystery where the more I tried to put words to it, the, the, the more it just turned into coils of smoke between my fingers and I couldn't mm-hmm. grab hold. So, but, that's, yes. but I never put two but, and two together. That, that's boomer yeah. stuff. They're singing they, the songs that California boomers California Raisins, I, I, can't, I, I couldn't explain it, but they certainly feel racist. There's something yes. about it that's probably racist, and I can't figure out exactly what uh, it is. Yeah, but to uh, uh, finish the thought, though, I mean, the, I mean, they originally were the California racist, and then oh, they said, well, "Can we just make it raisins not, instead?" Yeah, not very marketable. Uh, I, to finish, <laughs> well, it was the, from the it was cut. from the racism council. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Try it, won't you? The thought that got derailed by California raisin stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somehow. boomer stuff. When we were growing up, people wanted boomer stuff. Yes, but uh-huh. now I feel like now that we are middle-aged men, people are catering to our nostalgia, and so you've seen this this uh, this group of new movies that have you know like the, these synthwave soundtracks, these soundtracks that uh-huh. were like influenced by John Carpenter, influenced yeah. by like Tangerine Dream and Wang Chung, yeah. and. During the first wave of that, I was like, "Oh, great! This is my stuff." Like, like the guest or uh, drive or it follows. But like, the more every director does that to push my buttons or to satisfy their own love of that yeah. stuff, I'm the more I'm like, Ugh, "I feel so pandered to. I feel dirty. I don't like it anymore." Well, mm-hmm. That's like there's an episode of Stranger Things where at the end they play. Uh, the Bangles version of Hazy Shade of Winter during the mm-hmm. credits, and I really reacted to it because I love that version of that song, and it was like, I mean, the original version's great too, but, and I was getting mad because I was like, television show, I am not reacting to you. I am reacting to this <laughs> song right now. You did not mm-hmm. earn this. Yep. But uh, it's interesting you guys talk about that. I was trying to think earlier today about, I was trying to come up with a list of like, who are my favorite film composers? Because Morricone is certainly possibly the top but at least in the in the top three or, or two you know h- him and bernard herman are very like right up there but i was trying to think of who else and there were a lot of composers where i could think of like individual movies of theirs that i loved but i didn't love their whole oeuvre and then there are guys like john williams where like his work is so like when it's good it's the best and when it's not good, it feels like somebody imitating John Williams. But then he's oh, okay. able to, and he doesn't experiment much. And he used to experiment, you know, years and years ago more. But th- you guys want to hear the names I came up with? Sure. Is it just Danny Elfman wrote or written in increasingly larger font? Mm-hmm. I mean, Danny Elfman is on there certainly because okay. at at his best, he's like, he's he. Danny Elfman is one of those guys where like, at his, when he when like. Beetlejuice and stuff like that was coming out in Batman. It was probably like, who is this guy? And then he just kind of kept playing yeah. in that that co- color tone, and other people took it up. But like that Tales from the Crypt theme is amazing, you yeah. know. Like the the Nightmare Before Christmas music, I love. But uh, I also so, I really like his like maximalism too, because I re- I remember like a story about how he, like when he was asked to do the Simpsons thing, he was they're like. Just make it a theme like you're going to think this is the greatest show I've ever seen. Like, just like, and he's like, sh- he did it. Like, he's like, I'm just going to keep <laughs> adding crazy elements to this music. And <laughs> it's like, the fact that it opens with like a heavenly chorus saying yeah. the name of the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, so those guys, um, uh, like Franz Waxman and Max Steiner. Uh-huh. Are two like no, old old familiar. composers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Max Steiner did the music for King Kong, oh. and 
like uh, and Akira. I'm gonna pronounce it wrong, but if you Kube or the who did the Godzilla, the first couple of Godzilla movies, okay. and like that main Godzilla theme is so amazing to me. Uh, like I don't love all of Jerry Goldsmith's work, but like he did Gremlins, and he did Planet of the Apes, and those are both. Fantastic and Poltergeist scores. is a great score too. I don't know the Poltergeist score that well. Is that the, is that where they're like, "Watch out, it's a ghost." I think that's the one that goes. That's sort of like na 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 na. That one, like with okay, like creepy, like now we got a new ringtone. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> that. Uh, and he and uh, it was weird because I was like going through names, and then it was like, do I include Carl Stalling on this list? Because so much of the scores he wrote for Looney Tunes cartoons were just him slapping together songs that Warner Brothers had in its library. (laughs) Let's take Powerhouse and play it wackier. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading a book about him, and they were talking about how any time a character appeared wearing red or the color red, he would just put in Lady and like. it wasn't Lady in Red, the song we know, but another song about... And, uh, <laughs> and eventually the Loontoons directors were like, Carl, you cannot just go for a song that has a color in the title that's on screen. Like, that's too lazy. Like, you can't just use it for everything. Rocket Ship One, this is Mission Control. Come in. This is Rocket Ship One. Go ahead. Rocket Ship, what's your status on Max Fun Drive? Shouldn't we have seen it by now? Sorry about that, Mission Control. Turns out I miscalculated Current projected ETA for Max Fun Drive is July 13, but it looks different. It'll be for four weeks, so it's longer than expected, but all readings point to low-key. Oh, that'll be good. But can you verify that there are still special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? Verified. Sweet gifts for new and upgrading members, plus amazing new episodes and even special weekly live streams for charity. Copy that. Rocket ship, can you confirm ETA for Max Fun Drive? 90% probability of Max Fun Drive from July 13 to August 7. Did you say 90%? There were a couple of decimal places, and I might have carried a zero wrong. I'm just going to pencil in July 13 to August 7. Mission Control out. Hey. I'm Bria Grant, an e-reader who loves spoilers and chocolate. And I'm Mallory O'Mara, a print book collector who will murder you if you spoil a book for me. And we're the hosts of Reading Glasses, a podcast designed to help you read better. Over the past few years, we've figured out why people read. Self-improvement. Escapism. To distract ourselves from the world burning down. And why they don't. Not enough time. Not knowing what to read. And being overwhelmed by the number on their TBR list. And we're here to help you with that. We will help you conquer your TBR pile while probably adding a bunch of books to it. Reading glasses. Every week on MaximumFun.org. There's a movie that I'm trying to decide if I'm going to recommend it on the podcast or not called Buck and the Preacher. That's a movie Sidney Poitier directed that stars him and Harry Belafonte, and it's a Western. And the movie is like not quite all the way there, but the score is amazing. So are there any movies that you guys can think of where the score is better than the movie? Oh, man. Probably. Well, I, you know I what? Mean, like, I, other than Hawk the Slayer. I, uh... Where the score is... With <laughs> Hawk the Slayer, the score, I would, I would list to yeah. that as just regular music. You know? I just happened to uh, be uh, looking at the Wikipedia entry for Elmer Bernstein when you asked that question. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it, 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 <laughs> And, uh, you know, like Elmer Bernstein, of course, did these uh, wonderful uh, 
sort of heavily theme-based um, scores for the Magnificent Seven and the Great Escape, just like just great scores. But he then, yeah. And for Great Escape, he did dun 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 dun, dun right. Yeah, great, bum, great bum, stuff. Bum, 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 bum. It's a little my too jaunty <laughs> for a movie where people are escaping from a Nazi prison of war camp. It's a very jaunty theme. Mm-hmm. Well, but then, but I guess it's better than the original. The original theme he wrote for the Great Escape was even jauntier. It went, whatever happened to predictability? Oh, yeah. well, the milkman, okay. the paperboy, the evening TV. <laughs> okay. I and wanted to say that he had the like this sort of second life as a uh, a guy who scored uh, comedies. Like uh, Stripes and Ghostbusters and Airplane. And like he kind of was tapped to do that because these directors rightfully sort of knew that it would be funnier to put like a quote unquote serious score to these uh, movies. But he started on that track with you asked about a movie where the score is better than the movie. And that's uh, Animal House, which, you know, uh, has a lot of unpleasant stuff in it. But. But Elmer Bernstein, like, I think it was great to hear him in all these comedies where he, like, lends this dignity that then can be undercut. Hmm. Sorry, I was just looking up who uh, wrote the score for Police Academy. (laughs) Oh, who was it? Uh, I think it's Richard or Robert Folk. See, that score feels like someone trying Robert to do an Ford. Elmer Bernstein knockoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, when you were listening to those, I was like, that, I feel like that theme music has been so burned into my head from watching so many yeah. Police Academy movies as a kid. Um, I'm surprised uh, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned Johnny Greenwood yet. I feel like mm-hmm. his, for, uh, for somebody working currently, he's, uh, he's been putting out a lot of great stuff. And his, his stuff definitely elevates whatever he's putting the music onto, for sure. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, these Paul Thomas Anderson movies would be dog shit. They are, it's just, it's like, okay, let's take a bunch of people yelling at each other and a bunch of people just sitting, staring Uh into space, slap Uh them together, photograph it beautifully, Uh throw this Johnny Greenwood score, (laughs) and there you got your movie. There's your PTA movie. (laughs) What was was his last movie? You're going to get the internet angry at you. Uh, Phantom Thread. Oh, right. I have to, guys. I like a lot of his movies. I don't like all of them. I was not. I've never been a big Maghead. That's a Magnolia yeah. fan. Well, that's a but, bad uh, movie. Yeah. The. Uh, but I gotta admit, I fell asleep during Phantom Thread, guys. Do wow. I have to give away my movie snob card? Did you eat a weird omelet right before you fell asleep? Uh, yeah, I did eat a weird omelet. Oh. That's right. But I kept. I kept waiting for the guy to be haunted by that thread that uh-huh. he killed. Yep. That comes yep. back uh-huh. to haunt him. I, uh, I, honestly, the most exciting part of the movie for me when he's when he orders that huge breakfast, and I was yeah. like, "How is he still going to eat this whole breakfast?" Oh, he's a hungry boy. Um, do you, Michael Giacchino? Is that how you say his last name? Probably. I I, I want to mention him. I feel like he's kind of like the new John Williams. He's like good at doing these uh, uh, big uh, blockbuster films with a sense of playfulness. Like, he's got a little more of the zany. He's like John Williams plus, like, a touch of the zany, and I really like uh, his scores in general. Yeah, obviously, the greatest score ever written is still the theme for Chopping Mall. The <laughs> uh, I don't think that gets enough credit. Uh, that's also a nice, trim, 80-minute movie, so as soon as it's over, you just spin that fucking thing back up again, you know? Mm, no, but there's one big problem like with that a, movie. It's like a grindcore record. What? There's one big problem What's with that problem? movie. Uh, not a lot of chopping. Yeah, I no. mean, it's robots blasting people. There's no chopping in that mall. Uh, <laughs> no, where's well. the chopping, I say? 
Uh, one and I, I, I'd be remiss. Uh, I forgot. I'm watching a movie that Quincy Jones did the score for, and he did a bunch of good. His score for the Anderson tapes is oh, yeah. really weird and neat. The Superfly score is a really, really great score. Uh, well, that's a great score. Well, that's one I was wondering. Does that count as a score? Because a bunch of it is made up well, of pop songs, but they were written for the movie. They're written right? for the movie, yeah. And then, you know, like a, you know, a lot of it is songs. A lot of it is instrumental. I think, yeah, I, th- I would call it a score. Well, like this, like. But the, this, this, because like the song Superfly itself is a great song. Yeah. And like Pusher Man's a really good song. And, but, uh, the, but that's not Quincy Jones who did that. No, no, that's, uh, who, who is that? That's uh, Curtis Mayfield. Curtis right? Mayfield, yeah. Okay. For a second, I was very worried that you thought it was the same guy. <laughs> no, I. And rather, rather than just a <sighs> similar ish sounding sound, uh, in some ways. Let's, what's really funny is, so I looked up Best Movie Composers on Google, and a bunch of the regular faces come up, John Williams, Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman with a ghoulish smile, uh, Ennio Morcone, and all these other people. And then suddenly, in the middle of scrolling through these pictures, who shows up but Johann Sebastian Bach? Interesting. What uh-huh. films did he work on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Well, also, then you start seeing um, uh, directors pop up in there. I did the same thing, and I... Uh... And you got Steven Spielberg suddenly, and um, and Christopher Nolan, and it's like, uh, I mean, well, Christopher Nolan, I think he did create Wom. I think that was probably he wrote that. I yeah. think, yeah. Uh, here's oh. Tchaikovsky, another one of the great film composers, uh, Peter Peter Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I wanted to mention I uh, a couple that I'm seeing coming up here that I didn't think of before is uh, Henry Mancini. And uh, mm-hmm. and Carter Burwell, who does a lot of the Coen Brothers music, he's a fantastic. Oh yeah, and here's composer. Lalo Schifrin, who uh, I guess he's best known for his TV work, but he did the he did the score for Kelly's Heroes, and it's a really fun score. Aside from having the single maybe worst theme song I've ever heard <laughs> in a in a movie that I like, yeah. it's the the title song, which is not called Kelly's Heroes, it's called like Burning Bridges or Burn Your Bridges. It's a terrible song. It's so mm-hmm. bad. And don't they but the like- rest of the score is good. Don't they at the end of that movie play the song with like sort of like jolly like photos of the actors and their roles like even like right. people who are like assholes in the movie they're like yeah well, it's just showing <laughs> them enjoying themselves yeah because yeah. it's got a happy ending because they got the they get the gold yeah mm-hmm. I uh, I would say the 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 score experience that uh, struck me the most was when I went and saw a Crank Two in the movie theater. And the uh, the score for that was done by uh, Mike Patton, the uh, you know uh, vocalist of many rock bands, including uh, Faith No More, and he has done so many different things. Uh, and it is uh, so perfectly unpleasant to exactly match the content of Crank Two. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of scores that are there to sort of uh, disquiet and stress you out rather than. Anything else? Uh, I, I like the uh, John Bryan uh, score for Punch Drunk Love a lot, which uh, has a lot of like just like thumping as oh. uh, Adam Sandler runs around. Yeah, a lot of thumping and tinkling. And, and I, I want to mention <laughs> that, on, that was uh, the name of his album, Thumping yeah. and Tinkling, Volume when, Three. When I mention uh, Mike Patton, I also want to uh, he one of his various bands, uh, Fantomas, uh, put out a record. Uh, it's it's like a supergroup band, but they put out a record called The Director's Cut, which is just like remixes of classic uh, movie and horror movie themes and stuff like that. Uh, if you're a fan of that sort of thing, I'd recommend checking it out. It's cool. Well, I just thought of one, too. Uh, Audrey and I watched Anatomy of a Murder just recently, right before it went off uh, 
the Criterion channel because she had never seen it. And that has uh, Duke Ellington music as the score. And that was kind of like, I feel like there's this period in Hollywood where they're suddenly like, oh, yeah, we could put jazz in a movie. <laughs> yeah, have that be the score. Because Sweet Smell of Success has a similar kind of feel to the score, and it's great. But Sweet Smell of Success is an Elmer Bernstein score, Yeah, but right? it's, it's a very like jazzy take on an Elmer Bernstein. I guess that's true. Well, it's because they were, look, they were, they were, they were going after the, the, the boomers of those, of that day, I guess the Mm -hmm. world war two generation who Mm -hmm. were like, whatever happened to the jazz I grew up with? I want to hear that in my movies. And someday Sammy, I guess his generation, it'll be like, I want to see movies where the score is all TikTok lip syncing. Uh huh. That'll be really be pandering to them. And then eventually, uh, when his kids are older, it'll be a lot of movies where all the music is played with, uh, like, logs being thumped against boulders because society will have collapsed. Oh, okay. That's, what, that's where we're heading? I, well, what'll happen is when, when he has kids, society will have collapsed, and then it'll rebuild itself again. But they'll be uh-huh. making all these movies, and they'll be like, you know yeah. how we get those kids who grew up in the bad times yeah. is... We'll mm-hmm. use just all natural instruments because that's what they're used to, uh-huh. instead of the music that the aliens brought with us when yep. they rebuilt our society. Because the alien uh-huh. music, you know, is all going to be like do 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 with a lot of steel drum for some reason inexplicably, even though you don't see any of any of the bith in the band Figure and Dan and the Modal Nodes playing a steel drum, but there's a lot of steel drum all of a sudden, a whole steel drum solo basically. Where's the steel drums? That's what they should have added in the special edition. I want to uh-huh. see me a Bith playing a steel drum. Yeah. You know, what I enjoyed about that the most was, like, Stuart was in there doing his sort of usual bit where, like, he just sort of uh-huh. continually agrees to Elliot as he goes on a <laughs> oh, long sure. riff. And uh, he's now doing it to me. And, uh, but as soon as he started, uh, you know, singing that, that jizz music. Uh, uh-huh. Jizz wailing music, yeah. Stu uh, perked up. <laughs> like, he got a little happier. <laughs> Because it's a great song, guys. Yeah. Every and I don't know why it didn't win best song at the Academy Awards that year. I'm gonna find out what did win instead of Cantina Band theme. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's yes. ironic that it's and it's ironic that years later, Max Rebo won best song uh-huh. with For him what? and Cy si- si Noodles and Droopy McCool. Not as good a song, but I guess by then people's ears had gotten used to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. People had gotten used to that style of uh, Tatooine. Tatooine music. Yeah, I mean, Tatooine, Tatooine is really where it's really where all the uh, the hot sounds of the universe are coming out of because uh-huh. it's like uh, it's like um, like Jamaica in the sixties and seventies. It's kind uh, of and fifties okay. even. It's like the place where people are just kind of playing the music that's in their blood, you know, in yeah. their bones. It's from uh-huh. real life experience, and it's not like studio polished stuff. Sure, and that's yeah. how you can get these hot new street bands like uh-huh. Figuring Dan and the Modal Nodes and uh-huh. uh, the Max Rebo Band, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, that and of course, the sense. other thing is they're all built around <laughs> they're all built around strong band leaders who bring mm-hmm. a singular voice to it. Figure and Dan, Max Rebo. Uh-huh. I'm sure there are other examples that I don't have at my fingertips at the moment. But you know, like uh, maybe there's a Hoth band that you know the Wampa and the other mm-hmm. Wampas. I mean, there there is, have... there is a there is a band named Hoth. They're a uh, black metal band, uh, and mm, but they don't exist in the. Star Wars canon universe, I mean, right? I I think they might have talked about him in one of the comic books. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair. So anyway, original song in uh, uh, that year was 1978. Mm-hmm. Looks like the uh, we, the winner for original song was "You Light Up My Life," 
Oh, yeah. oh by on. Max Rebo. <laughs> by me, it was by Max. It was Max Rebo's cover of "You Light Up My Life." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes uh, sense. That makes beating sense. the beating. Uh, nobody does it better from the Spy so. Who Loved Me. So, oh wow, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and m- someone's waiting for you from the Rescuers. Oh, okay. Uh, a, a movie that I did not remember there being a song in. <laughs> nope. Uh, and also, things? Candle on the Water from Pete's Dragon. I That's right. That Disney one. had two songs yeah. in the original song category. I'll be your candle on the water. Is how that song goes. Anyway, Stuart, you've been trying to say all. something for a long time. Oh, uh, yeah, Stuart, are you here? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was talking to a, a buddy who's uh, my buddy Harry, who's a real uh, score freak. That's and a Bigfoot. Right? Yeah, and a Bigfoot. And he, uh, well, we were talking about how it seems like a studio like A24 seems to be, uh, I don't know if it's on a studio level or it's just that they're giving their filmmakers more control, but it seems like there's there's a lot of non-traditional composer choices, whether it's like Uncut Gems, where you get, uh, where they got somebody from the like electronic music scene, uh, as well as other examples that don't immediately come to mind um and i think that's i think that's kind of interesting to go in a non-traditional route do you guys have any thoughts or would you rather it just be stuffy old guys composing in front of a giant orchestra uh no i i I like i like it when that happens i mean i think that it's a continuation of something that started kind of to happen with um even earlier i mean like danny elfman and uh you know started out in Oingo Boingo, and yeah. uh, like, cause there's you got someone like Mark Mother- Mothersbaugh from Devo, who's like been a composer for years now, like uh, doing a lot of Wes Anderson stuff, among other things. and Rugrats and Rugrats. Yes, uh, I was gonna say that, and I'm like, is that a real fact? Like, is my brain playing tricks on me? But <laughs> it is a real fact. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, really funny if like he did write the music for Rugrats, but it was classified as not a real fact. So. <laughs> It was like, mm, doesn't rise the level of importance to be a real fact. Yeah, but I do like uh, getting new sounds into movies because, uh, you know, like you get this. I feel like everything has been dominated, at least in Hollywood movies, by this kind of swoony romantic sound for forever. And like that, like we talked about the music in Hawk the Slayer. And one of the things I loved about that was just how different it was from... Uh, what we would get in a fantasy movie now, just because like everything has been so codified, it's like, yeah, why not have a movie that has a soundtrack that's kind of like disco-y, prog rock, spaghetti western version of fantasy music? I don't know. Yeah, throw it all together. Why not? There's lots of great types of music out there. Throw them in your movie. Do choose whichever kind you want. Make it just a lot of eerie screeps and scrapes, mm-hmm. or make it like a, a lush orchestral thing, or all, jazz all it up. chain rattles. Yeah, yeah. Just or make it that that hot jizz wailing sound that's coming out of mm-hmm. Tatooine these days. You know, I was trying to think. I've I felt bad that so many of our names that we were mentioning were, you know, the same type of the same type of uh, like older white gentleman or younger uh-huh. white gentleman. And I just wanted to mention that there are lots of other movies that have great music. I just don't know the names of the people who did them. Like, there's a song from uh, the Indian movie Zanjir that mm-hmm. st- I was trying to I was trying to explain it to Sammy the other day. There's a song called Chakuchurian Tez Karalo that is that I love and it plays in my head all the time. But I do not know who wrote it. But the music in that movie I like a lot, and I could look it up, but um, 
Actually, why don't I look it up? Okay. Hold on a second. <laughs> I realized I have the computer right in my hands. Hold on. You're really getting the uh, internal monologue from Elliot tonight. Oh, it was the it was the Indian composing duo of Kalyanji and Ananji. Yeah. So uh, I, can't, I can't see Elliot's hands, but I'm assuming that his hands break into a bunch of tiny little metal fingers, like the uh, computer guys in Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, it's or it's it's a lot like Minority Minority Report, where I'm just like moving things around in front of me uh-huh. with my with my special gloves in my hologram mm-hmm. screen. Yeah. Um, but the hard thing of that is when your kids run in and they start poking around on your hologram screen and moving everything around, and you're like, Ah, oh, I had that organized just the way I oh, liked no, it. Stop future doing crimes. that. <laughs> oh no! Now Tom Cruise is guilty. Ah, oh uh, boy. Take his eyes out. Well, guys. So what was so what happened in that movie, guys? Which one? What do you mean? Minor Ma- Max von Sydow is the bad guy. guy. Oh, Wait, Max von Sydow is the bad guy. You're right. Never mind. Uh, so I just wanted to say, uh, you know, in the uh, like, let's 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 keep it a mini this time. Let's keep it a mini. We don't have a guest. We're three guys who love movies but don't necessarily know a lot about movie scores. <laughs> Talking uh-huh. about movie scores, let's we see. know. I would say we know more than the average person, and much, 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 much less than someone who really pays close attention to scores. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, so I just, you know, let's, let's close it up. Let's close up the okay. old Wait, but we haven't even talked bag. about the movie, the score, which I assume has music in it. <laughs> uh, that's the movie where, right. uh, <laughs> was it like, like Marlon Brando said something to like Frank Oz, like, like, I, like, I'm not one of your puppets. You can't stick your hand up my ass and manipulate me. I like, think that's exactly what he said. Uh-huh. But the weird thing is Frank Oz then did exactly that and proved him wrong. Yeah. And much of that movie, uh, Marlon Brando's performance is Frank Oz using Marlon Brando's body like a puppet with his hand up his rear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, let's uh, <laughs> sign off, guys. Uh-huh. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, next week, we'll be back with uh, an actual movie. Uh-huh. Uh, we, I which, think we decided we could start talking about what the movies are ahead of time. Yeah, so you, we can say keeping something. Keeping it a damn secret all the time. Uh, we're going to be talking about Artemis Fowl. That's the next one, right? Uh-huh. Artemis Fowl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Artemis Fowl. It's mm-hmm. a children's movie about a kid who is the what the son of the goddess Artemis and a bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could only assume. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I know it's bird. based on a book, uh, yeah. and I think that book is uh, Team of Rivals. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, To the Lighthouse. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a kid's adaptation of To the Lighthouse. <laughs> That would be an interesting movie, uh-huh. and I think it would go a little something like this. From Walt Disney Pictures comes the story of a family, a very special family. Ah, oh, time works differently here at the Lighthouse House. Oh, Dad, are we ever going to get to that Lighthouse? Oh, so many things are happening in our life, but the house remains. I... It's a heartwarming classic for families of all ages. See, Walt would... Disney Pictures presents... To the Lighthouse, starring I uh, probably Colin Firth. I Colin was a Firth, <laughs> Emily Blunt, probably. Probably Emily Blunt, and mm-hmm. and also the Lighthouse will be voiced by Josh Gad. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's I was a, I was saying that you got to anthropomorphize the Lighthouse. That's mm-hmm. that's number one. That's the number Every... one note I would give you when you deliver the script to me, uh, Mister Disney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're Walt Disney, right? I am yeah. Walt. Well, I they unfroze me put me on uh, you know a, like they've chose a terrible body to put me on i gotta say this lumpy <laughs> aging rapidly uh, mm-hmm. but i'm back i'm back guys yeah well you shouldn't have chosen the wrong goblet, unions. 
What? Yeah, you, you should have chosen the cup of a carpenter, man. Yeah, yeah, that's true. yeah. Instead of that, instead of that poorly. gold thing that you picked up, that was foolish of you. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. the most golden, oldest <laughs> He's like, trick hmm. in the book. Jesus was a carpenter's son in ancient Judea. He probably had a pretty banging cup. (laughs) His cup was probably glitzed the fuck out. So, Mr. Disney, I don't want to make this any longer than it has to be. I know you're a busy man. You're a head sewn onto another man's body, and we have to finish up this mini. But I thought I might just throw out to you my first draft, really, of the song The Lighthouse Sings that Josh Gad sings in the the To the Lighthouse uh, family feature adaptation. Okay. Life can be a little lonely when you're a lighthouse sitting on a rock. You sit there all by yourself, you're only staring inside you at the clock. Oh, when are they going to get to me, the lighthouse? When are they going to get over here to the lighthouse? When am I going to see? When am I going to be? When they going to get to me? And so imagine there's also like a lot Uh of goofy stuff happening on screen, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, oh, life uh, as a lighthouse okay. seems like it'd be grand. Life as a lighthouse. Hey, give me a hand. <laughs> I bring the ships safely into port, but you know I want more. Oh, it's an I want song. I see. When are they going to get to the lighthouse? <laughs> I really want them to get to me. When are they going to get to the lighthouse? Uh, I've got the light that will help them see. It's so I mean, crazy that Elliot had this whole thing written out before I will, the episode. You know, I can... <laughs> this whole episode was just a long wind to get to finally get to my yeah. To the Lighthouse song. Elliot was dropping little seeds for me to set them up. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can hear... I, you know, I think Peebo Bryson will be glad to do the... Uh, the... <laughs> The, the the pop version. I do have a. I mean, there's some meter problems. The part that I was most confused about. It's a though, first draft, Dan. It's is, a first draft. So he's looking inside himself at the clock because yeah, because he's a building. Because he's a and building. The clock is inside. Okay. Yeah. All there's right. no clock in the sky unless you count the sun, nature's clock. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I wish I do. I okay. guess all and that so, checks out. So anyway, so then they're trying to get to the lighthouse. Oh, the family, God. they're dealing with deaths. They've got to get, they decide to go to the lighthouse. And that's when, of course, the, uh, the villain, the mm-hmm. waves that are keeping uh-huh. them from the lighthouse, that's when they have their song. Uh-huh. The motion of this ocean, the mm-hmm. devotion I feel for stopping this family, the lighthouse. That lighthouse, he thinks he's so great. Oh, I just really hate that lighthouse. But what do I want? This ocean here, unlike my water, it's not very clear. The ocean is me, but... What can I see? Very Nightmare Before Christmas over here. It is very Nightmare Before Christmas, now that I think about it. And it's a second I want song, which is interesting. I I don't think the villain usually gets one of those. Because it's just like Walt Disney's Everybody Wants Some. Okay. Uh, I I realized at a certain point that it was just a Jack Skellington song. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the master of fright and a demon of night. That kind of stuff. I I I gotta say, uh, for... For a, a composer that I love so much as a, a film composer, I do not right. much I do not much like the songs to that uh, that movie because they all do like I feel like from his pop music days he's forgotten how to write a normal song that just like mm. kind of has a melody and goes because like, you're, you're saying that the musical about the skeleton man was too spooky. No, but I'm saying that it like there's not like a there's not really much of a melody to any of the songs. They are like that. They're like but. 
How will I do this thing? I must get an idea now. Like well, it's in the it's in the it's in the grand Gilbert and Sullivan light operetta tradition. Yeah. There's some I find uh, her uh, Sally's song very beautiful. There must be something in the wind. That that one. There's good stuff in there. I just tragedy at hand and the wild like like, to stand by him. Luckily, it's paired with some world class animation. Yeah, I mean, it looks. Can't keep your eyes off that screen, you know. What about Dan? What about the part where they go? This is Halloween. This is Halloween. That's a year round song. Barely. That song. A melody. (laughs) I I like I like Oogie Boogie's song. I like. I think that's a good one. Okay. Uh Yeah, that's. I mean, there's lots of good songs in it. There's good stuff in there. I just expected more out of Danny Elfman. Danny, I expected wow. more out yeah. of you. Wow. Danny, Danny Spider-Man Elfman. That's what he's best known for. Uh, Danny, if you're listening, I like all the songs in it. I think you're doing great. Uh, I mean, you were doing great. When did that movie come out? 27 years ago And so? Danny, if you're listening, I immediately take everything back I said about you. <laughs> I feel very embarrassed, and I'm sorry, and I love you. You've done great I mean, work. Dan, you have to admit, you got to give him credit. The guy is an elf. He has to jump from piano key to piano uh-huh. key because he's yep. so tiny. Yep. Just, to, just to eke out a simple tune. Uh-huh. Yeah. And on, on the subject of composers, I just want to do a quick shout-out to my buddy Jonathan Hartman. Who is uh, who just composed the theme music that is used in all uh, all of the video content put out by Games Workshop, my former employer, the people who make Warhammer. Okay, guys, that was really I, you nice. guys don't sound nearly fucking impressed. Enough. I am so uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, no, no, hot and sweaty right now, and we mm-hmm. tried to end this thing, or I did, fifteen minutes ago. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Dan, you tried to deny the world my original operetta musical based <laughs> no, on no, to the lighthouse. You know what? There's great stuff that happened. Great stuff. But now let's. But now we should let you go because you're you're visibly uh-huh. melting. This yeah. is a lovely mini brought to you by Minnie's Bar, the home of the locally sourced Frankfurters. Mm-hmm. And if you have any other questions about Mini Pearl or Mini Me, please send them to Dan McCoy, courtesy of the Flophouse, at Dan's house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, visit MaximumFun.org, our network, for other great shows. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that internet stuff. Thank you mm-hmm. for being here with us. Just don't, don't f- like radar singing. Like. Yeah, thank thank you to Jordan <laughs> Cowling for uh, editing this nonsense. Uh, for the Flophouse, I've been Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. I'm Elliot Kalin, Mr. Walt Disney. Call me. Nighty night. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.